Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This morning is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. And Lent is the roughly 40-day season leading up to Easter. Right? This is part of the liturgical calendar, and the liturgical calendar, the whole point is to call us into involvement with the story of Scripture. So for, for the Christian year, it actually begins in Advent. Our year in the liturgical calendar begins with Advent. And so we, we've actually been paying attention to the seasons, beginning with Advent and then Epiphany and now into Lent. And the reason we do that is because called liturgical calendar. Liturgy actually means the work of the people. And so the festivals, the the traditions of the liturgical calendar, they're kind of like community reenactments of the stories that they celebrate. These are the stories, these are the, the traditions that shape us as the people of Jesus. And so what I love about the the intent of following the liturgical calendar is that we're not only calling it to mind, we're not only remembering these stories uh, intellectually or studying them, we're actually involving our bodies, our senses, and our community in them. So Lent is the season all about renewal and repentance. So we begin with Ash Wednesday. Repentance means turning around. Um, And so every every season in the calendar has particular practices that are attached to it. And the practice most closely attached to to Lent is fasting. Fasting or abstaining from different things. That's the primary practice attached to Lent because it's all about renewal and repentance. And we remember in that that Jesus fasted for 40 days. When he was in the desert, when he was preparing himself to go to the cross, to begin his public ministry, he went into the desert, he fasted for 40 days. And so Lent for us every year is this opportunity to renew our hearts, to to prepare our hearts once again to serve him, to follow him, to take up our cross and follow after Jesus. And what I particularly love about it is it's remembering him. It's doing that not only in a mental, intellectual way, but involving us physically, emotionally. Preparing us in our bodies even to remember the betrayal, the trial, the execution, the burial of Jesus. Because this is what he did for us. And so as we enter this season as we're preparing our hearts, as we're renewing our hearts to remember that, the teaching series that we're going to do here is going to focus on one central question, which is, okay, this is what he did for us, but what exactly does it mean? What is the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross? There's lots of ways to answer that. But the earliest, the most concise and earliest answer that we, found, that we find in Scripture is actually in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. 
All right, I'll just remind you what that says. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's his answer, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is quite simply the earliest written record that we have, the earliest statement of the gospel, of the meaning of what Jesus did. So Paul's writing in about the year AD 50 there. And as he says, he's actually just relaying an earlier tradition that had been passed down to him. I pass on to you as I also received, is what he says, right? And so as we trace where he got that from, we can actually date the tradition that he's quoting to the year roughly AD 35. So no, it's, it dates from no more than five years after the events of the crucifixion. And it tells us two things, all right? What's the meaning of the cross? Well, Paul says he died for our sins. But secondly, in accordance with the scripture, That is both extremely simple and utterly profound. Those are my favorite kind of things. And even as I say this, even as I introduce the topic of this series, I guarantee there's at least two different reactions to that as you're hearing this. Some of us who are new to church, we're saying, yes, this is exactly what I want to know. I want to know why Jesus died. Why did he really die? What in the world does it have to do with me? Why is it relevant? Okay, but some of us who are old to church are probably thinking, this is really basic. I mean, it says it right there, he died for our sins. Why do we have to complicate it any more than that? Isn't this kind of the one thing we know, Ian? You know, we're we're Protestants, we're evangelicals, we're cross people. This is what we know. This is our bread and butter, right? Now, something that N.T. Wright, the the British theologian, points out is, I think in kind of the modern Western church, when you look at Paul's statement that we just read, I think we've done really well on the first half. We've got, he died for our sins, down. We got that one. We don't really know what to do, and we've basically kind of ignored the second half of that statement, that he didn't just die for our sins, he died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Far fewer modern Western Christians would be able to answer what exactly that part of the sentence means. I don't know if you agree with me on that. That's my read of the situation. So I want to address that. Because Paul says he died in accordance with the scripture. And so our series is going to be called The Grand Narrative. And this is the central premise. You cannot understand the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross outside of the grand narrative of scripture. You cannot understand the meaning of the cross if you remove it from the grand narrative of scripture. All right, so we're going to be taking a fresh look at some old truths And if we're not too careful, it might just make the good news news again to some of us. 
And I'm hoping, I'm praying that it might make the good news good again to some of us. All right, so how do we get to the bottom of this question? What is the meaning of the cross? A good place to start is by looking at what Jesus said about it himself. All right, and on the night before he went to the cross, when Jesus wanted to help his apprentices, his disciples, understand what he was about to do. Of course, he'd said a lot of stuff about it, but they never quite seemed to get it, right? The night before he's about to go to the cross, he didn't share another lecture. He didn't give another sermon. He didn't leave, you know, an explanatory note for them to find afterwards. He shared a meal with them. And not just any meal, all four Gospels tell us it was a very specific meal. It was the Passover meal. And that's not a coincidence. It didn't just happen to be Passover. The Passover meal was and continues today to be the single most central formative community ritual of the Jewish people across the world. It is the single, the sine qua non of the Jewish people as, and their identity. That meal ritualizes the events that we read in the book of Exodus. It's the foundational story of the people of Israel. And so it's very intentional that Jesus would choose that day and that meal to prepare his disciples for the, for the cross that they were about to witness him going to the next day. This is the meal that, if you remember in the words of the Eucharist, that Jesus says, by this meal, we are to remember him. And by this meal, we are to proclaim his death. This is how we're meant to understand what he did on the cross, right? This is the very meal that we're actually memorializing, remembering, celebrating in the sharing of communion of of the Eucharist. All right, so what Jesus does for us here is he gives us an interpretive framework through which to understand what he's doing at the cross. I think we don't put those two things together maybe as we should. In other words, he's saying, this is how you are to understand this. This is how you are to remember it. This is how you are to proclaim it. He wanted us to understand what he did at the cross through the story of the Passover in the book of Exodus. And so if we don't interpret it within that story, then we're actually at least going to miss something very, very important. And we we might miss the, the point entirely. All right, so we're actually, we're in a good position to actually study the book of Exodus because we just finished uh, a a quick run through the book of Genesis, looking at dreams of generations. And so now we're going to move from there right into the first half of Exodus. And we're going to begin reading our story in Exodus 1, verse 6. And I'm just going to say, we're not going to be able to read the chapters in their entirety We'll read as much as we can, but I'd really encourage you as we're going through Lent, go through and study for yourself in their entirety the first half, the the, the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus. Because I think this is key for us to understand as we're preparing ourselves for the coming of Easter. Let's immerse ourselves in this story because that's what Jesus encourages us to do. All right? So Exodus chapters 1 to 15 would be a great thing for you to study as we go through these 40, 
40 plus days of Lent. Okay, so we're going to read in Exodus 1, and just to bring you up to speed, as we close the book of Genesis, we read how Jacob's clan, his sons, especially his son Joseph and his brothers and all their families, they came to live in the land of Egypt. And specifically, it tells us the land of Goshen, which actually to this day, it was interesting, I looked this up, to this day, it's one of the most fertile regions on the whole planet, 10 feet of topsoil. So they were given the very best of the best of the land, which is pretty cool, all right? They were blessed. They were highly favored. And then we open up in Exodus 1, and we're going to begin reading from verse 6, and I'm going to just interject some comments as we go along. It says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I'm just going to pause right there. And if you you were around for our Genesis study or if you've ever read the book of Genesis, I wonder if that opening reminds you of anything. The author here is taking us back very intentionally to the command. Well, he's taking us back to the creation story. Genesis 127, God fashions Adam and Eve, the first human couple out of the dust of the earth. He forms them in his image, and then he gives them a command. He says, be fruitful, multiply, cover the face of the earth, subdue it, govern it, cultivate it. It's all contained in there. And he puts this command, this vocation on men and women as the image of God. That was humanity's job. That was our vocation, our calling. And of course, if you're familiar with the story, they rebelled against that calling and everything quickly began to fall apart, deteriorate. And then this refrain comes back because this is the very same set of words that God promises to Abraham. I will multiply you. I will make you fruitful. You will cover the face of the earth. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And so the vocation on humanity now becomes a promise to Abraham that God will fulfill through his descendants. And that promise is repeated. We saw this through the last series that that promise is repeated time after time with the passing of each generation to dream that dream anew. And every single time, what they all had to learn was to trust God, to trust his story, that this was what he was bringing about on the face of the earth. That this is their destiny if they will trust his story and follow him. And so that promise we see repeated here at the beginning of Genesis, of Exodus. This is happening. It's happening, right? The promise is alive. But then it carries on. We're going to pick up in verse 8 here. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us. Remember, that was the same phrase used at the Tower of Babel. Come, let us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And again, we're going to pause here. So just like we had in Genesis 3, remember the serpent 
comes in from the field and begins to shrewdly manipulate the man and the woman. And in the same way, here we've got a rival authority inserting a different viewpoint into the story, beginning to twist what God had said was good and blessed for the earth and saying, actually, this will be bad. Actually, this will be against our best interests. And so it, he introduces, the, 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 the king introduces a, a different story, a story of fear, a story of scarcity. And it's a story that leads to abuse of power. It's a story that leads to violence to truth and ultimately violence against human bodies. And now watch what happens. You pick up the second half of verse 11. Um, it says, they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. God continues to be faithful to his promise. And it says the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. If you just notice here, there's a progression, all right? So at first, they, out of fear, out of a sense of scarcity, they put them to work. When putting them to work wasn't enough, they had to enslave them. And then it carries on, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Again, we've got this progression. When putting them to work wasn't enough, they enslaved them. When, putting, when, when enslaving them wasn't enough, they destroyed them. And it says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And to the end of the chapter, it, it, it shows uh, their defiance in that and that the Pharaoh goes further and he commands all his people to drown the Hebrew, uh, the Israelite boys in the River Nile and kill them. And so I'm trying to point out here that this is very much and very intentionally a retelling of the broad story of Genesis. So just like in Genesis, we had a creation and a fall and then humans being destroyed in the water. Here we've got a, a beautiful beginning, a flourishing creation beginning. And then we have a fall, a descent and humans ending up being drowned in the water. And so if that's true, if we're following the same retelling of Genesis, what should we expect to see next? Well, in Genesis, what follows after that is that God invites a partner to trust him, to restore the story that began at creation. And that man was Abraham. And so we're expecting to see the same thing here. And of course, in chapter two, we have the introduction of the baby Moses. And thus begins this chapter of the redemption. We're going to get into that next week. And I just want to just acknowledge a couple sources that have been really eye-opening in studying this. First of all, Marty Solomon and the, the, the Bema podcast has some really great stuff on the book of Genesis and these just the, the, the storytelling techniques and what's happening here culturally. And Ray Vanderlyn, who's a teacher 
has a video series called God Heard Their Cry, where it gets into, we're going to mention this in, in later topics, but it gets into the, the underlying images that, that we don't understand really, not knowing the, the culture, the religion of Egypt at that time. So those are great if you want to go really deep into the, the cultural and biblical studies. Okay, we've read this, most of the chapter, Exodus 1. What exactly are we to make of this? What does it have to do with Lent, all right? And how does it impact our understanding of the cross? And today, we're really just going to introduce this, and we're going to expound on it through the rest of the weeks. There'll be seven weeks in total through this Lent season. The first thing we need to see here is that Exodus is not just a story. This is the story of humanity. I want you to think of the Bible as one unified narrative. One unified story with many books and many authors coming together to tell one central story. It's really a grand narrative in four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And redemption is by far the longest chapter of that in the story of the Bible. In Genesis, we saw how God created this good and beautiful universe that everything in it, he looked at it and blessed it and said it was very good. And then came the fall. And very quickly, everything began to turn very bad. And all of that in Genesis, really, in a literary sense, it functions as a preface. It's an introduction to take us to the longest, the main chapter, which is the story of salvation, the story of redemption. And this is where it starts, really, in the book of Exodus. And Exodus begins with the same pattern, the original goodness, the original abundance, and then everything begins to deteriorate. And it results in dehumanization. People become objects, and then they become objects of destruction. And so the fact that this story is a retelling of Genesis which is really the origin story of all humanity. And then when we fast forward and we find Jesus saying, interpret the cross through this story, what that's telling us is that this is not just a story about the Hebrew people thousands of years ago under a particular Egyptian ruler. This is the story of humanity. This is part of the grand narrative of humanity as a whole. And what it helps us to see, the way it begins to help us get to our question for this series is it helps us see the nature of our fundamental problem as human beings, all right? Because let me ask you this, what is Israel's predicament in this passage that we just read? What is their problem? Well, they're being manipulated. They're being oppressed. They're being enslaved. And ultimately, they're being picked off. They're being wiped out. And yet we know from Genesis, right, from the first verses of Genesis, we know that they're created to be free, to multiply, to be fruitful, to govern and cultivate the earth with God. And so this is why Israel needs an exodus. It's our, our, the next point here is that Israel needs an exodus to be liberated from the abusive power of Pharaoh. Exodus, by the way, it simply means exit. If you go to Greece today, 
and you know, you're in a supermarket and you know, we have exit over our doors. In Greece, it says exodos, quite literally. So it just means exit. They need to get out of there, <laughs> right? And the reason is they are under an abusive, oppressive power under Pharaoh, right? But here's the thing. I, I, this is about more than just some unfortunate political circumstances. This is pointing us, because remember, this is the story of all humanity. This is a pattern of disease in the human heart. And so when we see this and we begin to ask, how did they get into this situation? Then we begin to get into what's going on at a deeper level. How did they end up in this situation? Well, you have to actually turn back to the end of Genesis. We're not going to read that, but I encourage you to go read that. If you read the end of Genesis, the the very end, it says God saved Jacob's family, brought them to Egypt, provided through the the, the wisdom of placing Joseph in this, this powerful position. He's provided for them in Egypt. But if you remember the whole thrust of that, that story of what God was inviting Abraham and his descendants to do, he said, sojourn, be immigrants. Don't settle because I'm taking you to a land that I'm going to give you, right? So he took them to Egypt and provided for them, but they were never meant to settle there. They were never meant to stay there because God knew if they did, they might end up trusting Egypt over him. And so they provide, he, he provided for them there, but they weren't meant to stay there. And if you read the end of Genesis, there's this progression, all right? So the famine that, that made Joseph's family, sorry, Jacob's family go to Egypt to, to get food, the same kind of famine that drove Abraham there and almost drove Isaac there, the famine gets worse and worse. And God uses Joseph to save the nation, to provide food for them. He fills up Pharaoh's storehouses with grain. And so all the people become, start coming to Egypt. It says all the nations actually start coming to Egypt. And they start giving Pharaoh their money for grain. And they're, they're very grateful. But then they run out of money. And they say, what shall we do? So they begin giving their livestock for food. Now Pharaoh owns their gold and their livestock. They run out of livestock. And then they say, what shall we do? And they sell themselves into servitude to Pharaoh. They sell themselves as slaves to Pharaoh. Now, at that point, Pharaoh says, well, I'm only going to take 20%. Whatever you, whatever you get, I'll take 20%. And it seems like a pretty good deal. They're happy. Pharaoh's rich. All good. All right? <laughs> Problem is, when we begin the story of Exodus, it doesn't... So, so at, as we start the story of Exodus, it's helpful to realize it's not just the Israelites who have to work for Pharaoh. Everybody works for Pharaoh at this point. And so Pharaoh is now in the position of power. And they'd sold, him, they'd sold themselves into serving him, which makes him able. That's what actually makes him able to abuse and oppress and extort from them. And he focuses on the people of Israel. And as the story progresses, that story in, in, in Egypt at the end of Genesis, beginning in Exodus now, we see that not only were they not 
no longer trusting God's promise and, and being sojourners in the land, they'd settled down. Not only were they not doing that, not only were they beginning to rely on Egypt for their provision, before they knew it, now they were building Egypt for Egypt. Now they were building the storehouses for, for Pharaoh's wealth. They were building Egypt's empire for them. Okay, so let's bring this back to the cross. Now, Jesus, by placing the story, the meaning of the cross within this narrative, what he's telling us is, the first thing we got to see here is the problem. Jesus is saying the same problem that you see in this narrative is the problem that I've come to solve also. Now, Exodus is a fundamental, it's, it's fundamentally a liberation narrative, right? That's why Exodus, this story of of Egypt and escaping slavery, it's been so popular um, in lots of different freedom movements. It's been very uh, hope-giving and popular among oppressed people. It's contributed to the freedom uh, of lots of different oppressed peoples around the world, holding onto this story and, and reading the cross through this story, all right? And Jesus says, the cross is also about liberation, Remember his mission statement in Luke, he says that he came to proclaim liberty for the captives and set the oppressed free, all right? The reason is we also, just like the people in this story, we also have sold ourselves into slavery to false gods. Like I said, this is is more than a political narrative. That's also true. We can't take that away, but it's also addressing all people at all times because all people at all times in fallen humanity have sold themselves into slavery and given the power to these false gods, all right? So I've said that Jesus says his mission statement is to proclaim liberty for the captives, to set the the oppressed free. Now, you might notice a slight tension with that or a problem with that. Because if you know that anything about the story of the Jews from this point onwards, you know that their freedom from Egypt was by no means the end of their problems, right? In fact, as you read the rest of the story, they're conquered one by one under a succession of different empires, eventually leading to the Roman Empire, um, which is where Jesus began his ministry, under which Jesus began his ministry. And so by the time Jesus came around, the Jews had been waiting and hoping for hundreds of years for a Messiah who would lead a new exodus, a new freedom from this tyranny of Rome, from the oppressive power of empire. And so this is why the disciples are constantly asking Jesus, Jesus, is now the time? Is now when you're going to overthrow the empire? Is now when you're going to do the kingdom and, 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 you know, get rid of these Romans? And yet you read the Gospels, and the one thing that Jesus doesn't do is bring a military political revolution. It's very conspicuous, especially to Jews, that he does not do this. Because this is exactly, this, this is the Messiah's job. He does not confront Rome, actually, as a political entity. He, he actually kind of ignores it which is interesting. You think of Moses, in many ways, Jesus is the new and better Moses, the fulfillment of Moses. But, but when Moses stood before Pharaoh, he spoke, right? Let my people go. If you notice when Jesus stands before Pilate, before, before Herod, 
He's absolutely silent. He feels no need to defend himself, to accuse, to judge. So what's going on here? I'm not saying that Christians and and the people of God uh, are not to speak truth to power. We absolutely are. That's an implication of this. Does it mean that Jesus doesn't care about the oppressed, that he doesn't want to set people free from, from this kind of you know, tyranny? Did he not really care if they were free? Well, again, that doesn't work because Jesus absolutely cared. He cared so much that he went to the cross to set us free. I think what this is pointing us to is, what if Rome was not the ultimate power that he was confronting? What if what Jesus had to say, what if the truth that he was proclaiming to power was not to them? And if Jesus is not confronting the political powers, who exactly is he confronting? The cross absolutely, definitely has implications for justice and political and and social reform and freedom and all those things. But, But here's the thing. Jesus came not to confront just the latest in a long line of human empires, he came to uproot the very source of evil. He came to uproot the very source of why all human structures and empires eventually descend into evil and oppression and abuse. Jesus confronts the dark spiritual powers that enslave humanity. Because here's the thing that scripture tells us. Sin... Now, just the wrong things that you do is not actually the fundamental problem. Sin is actually a symptom of an underlying disease. It's not just that we do the wrong things like the people of Israel. It's that we serve the wrong God. We serve the wrong rulers, the wrong gods. That's what leads to sin and destruction of God's creation. Romans 1 says that God gave them up in, Romans 1 is really just summarizing this this grand narrative of scripture. And and Paul says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, get this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There's an exchange of stories going on here. You see that? And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So you see, in in what Paul just said, summarizing this, this whole grand narrative is that what happens first is the exchange of one story for another, which leads to the worship of creature rather than creator, which leads to the breakdown of everything, i.e. sin. Most of the time we just focus on the sin We don't deal with the underlying stuff, which is actually where we're going to get into that in the rest of the series here, because that is is massive. But you see, the root problem is that we serve and we sacrifice to the wrong powers. We trust them with our lives. Why do we do that? Because we trust their story. We say, you know what? Egypt's got everything. Look at Egypt. They're not in want, they're not in need. What if I just give a little bit of my money to Egypt? Then I'll, then I'll be safe. And then I run out of money. Well, you know, I, I got some livestock here. I got some stuff. 
Maybe I'll just give Egypt a little bit of that. Then I'll be safe. Then I'll be provided for. Then we run out of that. And before we know it, we belong to Egypt. Egypt owns us. And this is the story of humanity. We have sold ourselves into the power, the control of false gods. And as we do that, the very things that we think are going to make us safe and secure and happy are actually destroying us. They're disintegrating our humanity, our identity, and ultimately they aim to wipe us off the map. And so this is going to lead, this is the problem at the heart of why Jesus went to the cross not only to deal with you doing wrong stuff, but to get to the root of the things that have power over us, to set us free so that we can once again worship our creator. And we do that, if you notice, how did God set that plan of restoration back into place with Abraham? He said, Abraham, trust me. Here's my promise. This is the promise. This is the story I've been telling since the dawn of creation. Would you trust me? Trust me. Even though Egypt looks really great right now, will you trust me? If you trust me, this is what I'm going to do through you. And you are going to play a part in the redemption and the restoration of the whole world. And it says, Abraham trusted God. He went, and it says that it was counted to him as righteousness. You know, sometimes you think of the Old Testament, you think, well, they had to obey God, and if they obeyed God, then he would bless them, then they were in covenant. No, it, it never started with that. It began, Abraham, will you trust me? Notice, God, in, in the book of Exodus, he sets the people free, then he gives them the law, right? It's always been about faith. It's always been about trust. And so I love that at the end of this passage, it says the midwives, the midwives are the heroes of this passage. I mean, you don't hear about these two women anywhere else in the whole of scripture, and yet they're named. They are named. Not, did you notice, Pharaoh's not named. Some king, some Pharaoh, doesn't really matter which one, but it names these two basically nobodies, Hebrew slave midwives. And it gives them a name. And they are remembered throughout history because they feared God. They trusted the power of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. They trusted God above Pharaoh and Egypt. It has always been about trust. And so our invitation today, as we begin the season of Lent, as we begin this series, is trust his story. Trust God's story over Egypt's story. I want to invite the, the, the worship team back up and we'll, we'll, we'll close this with a song together here, but it's all about this question. Which story are you going to trust? Because make no mistake, there is a very well-crafted, well-written, very convincing story out there that says what you need is everything the world has to offer everything that Egypt has. 
and you find out as you trust it, as you go after it, as you do the things that the story tells you you should do to get what you want, you find out you get less and less of what you want and you have less and less power to escape it as you do. This This is the story of our slavery to sin. And so there, there, there may be someone here this morning who said, you know what? That's exactly what I'm going through. And I'm disgusted with where my life has taken me thus far. And I want to be free from that. Your invitation this morning is, Jesus says, trust me. Trust me that I have created you with a purpose and a calling on this earth. I've created you to be part of the, the redemption and the restoration of all that this grand story of creation and humanity. But you got to trust me. You got to start there. Trust me. Trust me that I'm good, that I love you. And you know where you know that? You know how you can absolutely know that? It's not by looking around you at Egypt. It's not by looking around you at your circumstances. It's by looking at what Jesus did on the cross and saying, (laughs) No matter what else may be true, Jesus, you must really love me. Jesus, you must really be worthy of my trust if you were willing to do that for me. So I invite you this morning to to trust him for the first time if you've never done that. You do that by prayer. You just say, Jesus, talk to him. Jesus, I want to know you. I want to be free from all the things that are oppressing me, that are holding me back from what I know is the purpose of my life, which is, which is to know God, to, to, uh, to glorify him. Jesus, I trust you. Would you accept me? And you can begin a whole new story, a whole new chapter of your story today. Trust his story. And for many others of us, look, the, the people of Israel, they already had the promise They were already walking it out to an extent, and yet they found themselves yet again, as this story, this ups and downs, they found themselves despairing and hopeless. And so the Lord spoke to me on Ash Wednesday. I was feeling discouraged. um, And I just felt the Lord tell me, Ian, tell a different story. You're You're not telling the right story. If you're discouraged... You need to change your story because God wins at the end. Chapter one leads to Passover. (laughs) And that leads to the promised land. And those are are just pictures of what Jesus has done for us. And so I encourage you today, if you find yourself, maybe you need to respond in prayer. Maybe you need to come up and and, and be prayed for. Maybe you need to take this away and just just take it before God on your own. But God, I want to trust your story, cling to your story above anything else. And use this opportunity at the beginning of, beginning of Lent, once again, to renew your heart, to repent from any other false narratives that you may be clinging on to or listening to and say, Jesus, I'm going to trust your story. I'm going to trust your story. So let's, let's stand together as we close in prayer. Lord Jesus, Lord, would you work in our hearts as we begin this Lent season? understand in a fresh way, in a new way, what you've done for us, Lord. That you have liberated us from the power of sin and death.
that we may once again worship the true and living God, which is our purpose. So Lord, as we, as we, as we contemplate that, as we enact that in our, in our bodies and the traditions of Lent and the, these festivals, Lord, that we celebrate as a people, Lord, would you work it deep into our hearts? Lord, would you give us a renewed perspective on the grand narrative, Lord, that we would trust your story and entrust ourselves to you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word JESUS to 610-816-6062.